We're in Revelation chapter 15, if you will uh, turn with me in your Bible. You know, we just uh, bought a brand new set of hymnals for the church. And uh, there's a song in it, it's called Amazing Wrath, How Sweet the Sound. Not really. <laughs> no, I think Amazing Grace, that's sweet. But <clears throat> it's interesting from the Bible that we see uh, this idea of uh, amazing wrath is something that the Bible actually brings out. And it's here in chapter 15 where God's people are singing praise to God because he's bringing his wrathful judgment on unrepentant sin. So when I use that expression, amazing wrath, I don't think we should start singing a song for that. But it's something that comes out of the Bible here in Revelation chapter 15, where the, the saints in heaven are celebrating God's judgments on evil. Not just the saints, but the angels as well. Revelation chapter 15 shows us uh, a celebration in heaven over what is about to unfold on earth in what we call the bowl judgments. Revelation chapter 15 is part of a, of a larger kind of parenthetical section that uh, it, it begins in chapter 10 and then it goes through chapter 15 because what you have in chapter uh, 8 and 9 is you have those trumpet judgments where the trumpet blasts and there's judgments that pour down. The uh, chapters 10 and 15 are uh, parenthetical. The bold judgments begin in chapter 16. And that's what these saints in heaven are celebrating is the final outworking of God's judgment in these bold judgments. So we're going to look at this, or actually the flow of it is that there are three different sections, and each one of these sections is a scene of uh, the vision that John has. And so in each one of these sections, he says, and I saw, and then you've got something that happens. And so there's three of these sections, and we're going to uh, go back and look at these things in detail, but let's go ahead and read this together and then pray. Revelation chapter 15, verse 1, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had the seven plagues, which are the seven last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding the harps of God. Uh, yeah, let me back up a little bit here. They, uh, so, came off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding the harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the song, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true are thy ways. Thou King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For thou alone art holy. For all the nations will come and worship before thee, for thy righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple, the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was open. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their breasts with golden girdles. And one of the four living creatures, 
gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the plagues of the seven angels were finished. Lord, we know that uh, you are holy and uh, you hate evil. Lord, it's against your very character and uh, you must judge evil. Uh, We know it's a uh, terrible thing to think that uh, human souls will fall under your judgment. Um, And we don't rejoice over human souls perishing in judgment. But we do rejoice that you are a God who uh, will not allow evil to go forever. So we thank you for your word and what we know uh, from your word about uh, the future. And we pray that you would help us to draw closer to yourself. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, verse 1 is where you see this first scene where John says, And I saw. And the particular emphasis that comes out here in verse 1 is that we can see that uh, when these things come to fulfillment, what's going to happen is that these saints in heaven are celebrating something that's going to see a completion to the purpose of God, and that completion is going to include a finishing of the outpouring of his wrath. Now, you'll remember from our studies of Revelation that there's a structure uh, to the flow of the book, and it begins in chapter 6 where there is a scroll And this scroll has seven seals on it. And what happens is Christ begins to peel the seals off the scroll. And every time there is a seal taken off, there's an unfolding of God's judgment. And so the seal judgments take place in Revelation chapter 6. And the seal judgments take place in the first half of the seven-year tribulation period. That'd be the first three and a half years after the rapture. And those first three and a half years are parallel. If you were to go into Matthew chapter 24 at the Olivet Discourse, and you look at Matthew 24 verses 4 through 14, the seal judgments are in that first three and a half years. At the middle of that seven-year tribulation period is when the Bible says that the Antichrist is going to invade Jerusalem and desecrate a Jewish temple, and he's going to set up what's called the abomination of desolation at that three and a half year mark. And that's Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. And then that's what begins the last three and a half years of the tribulation period uh, that is sometimes called the great tribulation. And it's at that point when you come to the last three and a half years where you have the blasting of the trumpet judgments, which are in Revelation chapters eight and nine. And then what happens is that there is this parenthetical section in Revelation 10 to 15, and then the bold judgments begin in Revelation chapter 16. So these (coughs) events that we see described here in chapter 15 are the last things that John sees before the unraveling of the bowls of wrath. Now notice here in verse 1, John says, then I saw another sign great and marvelous. Back in Revelation chapter 12, God showed John uh, certain kinds of marvelous, great and marvelous signs. And he showed him, for example, how the nation of Israel fits into all of this picture of God's salvation. And he says that was a great and marvelous sign. It was symbolized by a woman. 
And then uh, John also saw this great red dragon, another great and marvelous sign. Here again, there's a great and marvelous sign, but this one here consists of seven angels who had the seven plagues. These seven plagues, it says, are the last of the plagues because in them the wrath of God is finished. In other words, when you look at the bold judgments and you see these seven bold judgments that start in Revelation chapter 16, every time a bowl is poured out, it's God's wrath being poured out upon the earth. Well, when you come to the last bowl, the seventh bowl, what it says here is that this is going to be the exhausting and the finishing of God's wrath. God's wrath is going to be finished and consummated in these bold judgments, especially when you come to that final seventh bowl. Now, what does this look like? Well, this is basically what we see in the second half of the tribulation period described in the book of Revelation. Some of the things that are going to happen in that future time period, if we look at that entire seven-year time period, let's just think about a couple of things that are going to happen, all right? Number one, it says in the seal judgments, Revelation chapter 6, it says that there is going to be such widespread death, uh, probably from war and disease, it says that in the fourth seal judgment, one-fourth of the earth's population is going to die in, in one single judgment. Wow. In today's terms, that'd be two billion people. Uh, it says in the trumpet judgments, in the fifth trumpet judgment, that one-third of the remaining population of the earth is going to die in that one single judgment. That's another two billion people, of, uh, a third of those that are left. There's never been anything in the history of the world that uh, fulfills that or even begins to approximate or come close to this. And you know why it's never happened in the past? It's future. The book of Revelation is not in the past. Revelation was written, the last book of the New Testament, it was written at the end of the first century in the year 95, and it says, these are the things that are going to shortly take place. These are imminent events that are going to come at the end of the age, it was not fulfilled in the first century. It has nothing to do with the first century. You're going to see widespread death. It also says that you're going to see the rise of a wicked leader that we call the Antichrist. And he's going to gain control over ten nations and have a massive block of power by which he dominates and tramples down the world. It says that <coughs> he has a a henchman that the Bible calls the false prophet. And it says that the false prophet and the Antichrist are going to impose an economic system on the world that says that you will not be able to buy or sell unless you take a mark on your body. It's going to be a mark put on the outside of your right hand or on your forehead. And this mark is the name of the Antichrist or a number that corresponds to his name. And that number is... 666. That's what it says in Revelation 13, verses uh, 16 to 18. There's going to be a mark. You can't buy or sell. Guess what? It's never happened in the past because it's future. The Bible says that unless you take this mark, they will kill you. You will not be allowed to buy or sell. And if they catch you, they will kill you. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 16 that more of this wrath is going to include a massive worldwide invasion against the nation of Israel and the armies of the nations come together at a place called 
Armageddon, Armageddon, and this is the Valley of Jezreel in central Israel, and they're going to come together to completely annihilate Israel. But guess what? God's not going to let it happen. The Bible says in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21, part of the seventh bowl, that, uh, that Christ is going to return at the end of that seven-year time period and utterly destroy these world armies that have come against Israel to destroy Israel. The Gentile armies get destroyed. Israel does not get destroyed. Israel gets saved from annihilation. Now God is going to bring that nation through a fiery judgment like they've never seen in their past. But God says he's going to bring the remnant to faith in Christ. He's going to save a remnant and restore that nation with a mighty salvation to a huge block of believers in Israel. And he's going to restore them. Well, that's never happened in the past. Do you know why? It's future. This whole book is about the future. This whole book is about the future. God says, these are the things that are going to take place. The Bible also says that when Christ returns in glory, in resurrection glory, shining like the sun, it says that the resurrected church is going to return with him. Revelation 19, verse 14. The church, the glorified church returning with Christ to bring judgments along with him. That hasn't happened yet. It's because we haven't been resurrected yet in the rapture, and we have not yet returned with him in glory. But it's going to happen because it's future. The Bible says that when Christ returns and brings the judgment on these Gentile armies, <coughs> all part of the seventh bowl, that he's going to take the Antichrist and the false prophet. And in Revelation 19, verses 20 and 21, it says that he's going to cast the Antichrist and the false prophet into a place called the lake of fire, where they will remain forever and ever in judgment for their sin. Hasn't happened yet. Still future. The Bible says that when these things take place, after that, it says that Christ is going to bring resurrection to all of the saints who have lived and died in the past. That means that the Old Testament saints are going to be resurrected to be with Christ in his kingdom and to rule with him. Hasn't happened yet. You know why? It's future. It says that he's going to bring resurrection to all of the people that got uh, raptured in the church. And they're going to be there with him in the kingdom. It says that the people who got saved after the rapture in the seven-year tribulation period, but were killed for their faith, they're going to be resurrected. And they're going to reign with Christ for the millennial kingdom, the thousand years. It hasn't happened yet. Do you know why? It's future. The Bible says that Christ is going to cast the devil and all of the demons into the bottomless pit. They will be bound in hell and not allowed to come out and to deceive like they're doing right now. It hasn't happened yet, but it will. The Bible says that Christ is going to rule this world for a thousand years. And at the end of the thousand years, there's going to be a final judgment where there's going to be a, a resurrection to all of the unsaved of all ages, and they will stand before Christ in judgment. Uh, in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, it's called the Great White Throne Judgment. And all the unsaved of all ages are going to be resurrected. It is going to happen. The Bible says that Christ is going to destroy this material universe 
and recreate the entire universe in a new heavens and a new earth. It says that. It really says that. Revelation chapter 21 and 22. It also says that there's going to be a whole lot of people that will not be allowed into that new Jerusalem. All of that is part of the unfolding of God's wrath in the seventh bowl judgment. So the seventh bowl judgment that brings the culmination of God's wrath is going to usher in a new heavens and a new earth. And all of those that have been willing to repent and believe will be in that that eternal kingdom in the new Jerusalem. But those that have refused will not be allowed. So in Revelation chapter 21 verse 7, it says that he who overcomes, in other words, that believes, he who overcomes will inherit all these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, Immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and all their liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, why this wrath? I mean, why doesn't God, why can't God just say, tell you what, we're going to go to a no-bail system. Now, you've been bad, but, you know, we're going to let you free. You don't have to pay any bail. No consequences. We're just going to let it slide. Why can't God just do that? The answer is because he's holy. He must judge evil. If God did not judge evil, he would not be God. He would not be holy. God is perfect in his holiness. And that's why he must judge evil. And that's what this wrath is all about. Now just think about this as we think about this first point in verse (coughs) 1. What is this application coming out of this thing? I'll say this. You better make sure that you yourself have opened your heart to believe in Jesus Christ. Because there's no option B. There's no makeup test for this one. You miss, fail the exam by not opening your heart to Christ. You will be one of the ones that is excluded in the lake of fire. Now here's a second point of application, I think, as we just think about this at an initial level. It's like, if, if this is true... And it is. If this is true, that means that you and I should be pretty passionate about telling others about this, right? Because it is the most important message for any human being. Now that brings us down to verse 2, where we come down here uh, to a second scene of this uh, vision that John has. This one here is the reason for this wrath. And to put it simply, the reason for this wrath is because people are doing bad stuff, especially they're persecuting those that believe in Jesus Christ. They're killing those that believe in Jesus Christ because they believe in Jesus Christ. They hate God. They hate his people. They're murdering God's saints. And what you see here is that these murdered saints are now in heaven, but they're filled with praise. Now, you know, again, you and I don't like it when somebody does us wrong, you know? whether they have uh, stolen something or destroyed something uh, or, you know, worse. Nobody likes it when somebody does evil against us. These guys have been killed for their faith, yet they're filled with praise. Notice down here in verse 2, John said, I saw something like a sea of glass 
mixed with fire. And I also saw those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. He sees this sea of glass that is mixed with fire. This is not the first time we've seen this. Go back to chapter 4 really quickly. Notice as you come down here to John seeing the vision of God in heaven. In chapter 4, in verse 5, John said, From the throne of God proceeded flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, this is what it looks like, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. This is the throne of God in heaven, surrounded by angels. And the idea of this sea of glass that is in front of God, but fire is, you know, he sees what looks like fire proceeding inside of that sea of glass. It's the idea of God being separate from all the creation and the fact that God is holy. And so because of sin, there is judgment that proceeds from God against anything that is evil. And so God is separate from evil, and because of evil, he must judge it. And so this fiery kind of uh, image that John sees is the holiness of God responding to a fallen world. And then John also says down here, back here in this uh, verse 2, it says, I saw those who had been victorious over the beast and his image, the beast, the Antichrist, his image, we read about that earlier, that they set up some kind of idolatrous image. And the false prophet animates this image, this idol, so that it can even speak. Whatever it is exactly that goes on there, there is some idol that represents the Antichrist. The believers won't worship the Antichrist or his image. They come off victorious. They will not take the number of his name. It says that these are standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. When John says that he sees these people who were victorious over the beast, he's talking about believers that would not bow the knee to this wicked individual, the Antichrist. And now they've been killed because of their faith in Christ. This is not the first time we see these people. Go back with me to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation 7 verses 1 to 8 is where John sees 144,000 Jews getting saved on earth during the seven-year second half of the tribulation period. But then in verses 9 to 17, there's a different group that he sees. This one here, Revelation 7, verse 9, he says, I saw a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. What you have here is a massive number of Gentiles who are coming to faith in that second half of the tribulation period, but they're being killed for their faith in Christ. Now they're in heaven, and they're praising God. These are the same people that we see here in Revelation chapter 15. These are the people, if you go with me to Revelation 13, these are the same people that John says would not worship the Antichrist by taking the image. Notice down here in Revelation 13, verse 16, that the Antichrist and the false prophet cause all, 
the small and the great, the rich and the poor, and the free and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. And here's wisdom. Calculate the number. It's 666. This has never happened, but it's going to happen. This is all part of the unfolding of God's wrath on a sinful world. No mark, no buying, no selling. We will kill you if we catch you, if you refuse this mark. Revelation chapter 20, notice how it confirms this. Revelation chapter 20 in verse 4. This is after Christ returns and is establishing his millennial kingdom. John says in Revelation chapter 20 verse 4, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. Those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead or on their hand, they came to life. They were resurrected. And they reigned with Christ for how long? The thousand years. There is going to be a millennium. The Bible says it explicitly over and over again. There is going to be a millennium. And what happens is that these people that refused to bow the knee to Antichrist, they are going to be resurrected, it says, and they're going to rule with Christ in resurrection for those thousand years. But as we come back to Revelation 15, they've been killed but they're not yet resurrected. They're in the presence of Christ in heaven, uh, but they have not yet been resurrected. Well, what are they doing right now? They're praising God. They're worshiping God. Notice what it says back here in chapter 15. It says that they have been given harps of God, and they're standing on this sea of glass, praising God. We see what their song of praise is down here in verses 3 to 4. It says here that they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, when we look at this here, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, you've got two historical examples of God's great redemption. At the Exodus, God crushed the Egyptian armies. At the Exodus, God made a way of salvation by parting the Red Sea. So with one package deal... God saved his people and destroyed the enemies that were trying to destroy Israel. That's the song of Moses. It's in Exodus chapter 15. The song of the Lamb is the second great judgment of God. And the second great redemption is the work of Jesus Christ to die on the cross, to buy our salvation by his blood, and to destroy those and judge those who are trying to destroy his people. So really, it's two images, but it's one song. The Song of Moses and the Song of Lamb are combining together. And the essence of this song right here comes in verses 3 and 4. Here's what it is. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God. And when he says your works, he's talking about the seals and the trumpets and the bowls that are about to unfold. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Make a couple comments about this here. You know, uh, 
when you look at God's judgment, again, we talk about this idea that, you know, he's bringing a harsh, unmerciful consequences on people. So, wow, that's harsh truth. I think it is. God's judgment on human beings is harsh. Even if we look at and say, wow, this person really got what they deserved, you know? The idea of God judging, and that's why sometimes the idea of eternal hell is hard for some people to accept it. They, they don't want to believe it, but this is what the Bible says. This judgment is uh, signified here by this Song of Moses and Song of the Lamb. One commentator from years ago said the Song of Moses was sung at the Red Sea. The Song of the Lamb is sung at the Crystal Sea. The Song of Moses was a song of triumph over Egypt. The Song of the Lamb is a song of triumph over Babylon. The Song of Moses told how God brought his people out. The Song of the Lamb tells how God brings his people in. The Song of Moses was the first song sung in Scripture. The Song of the Lamb is the last. The Song of Moses commemorated the execution of the foe, the expectation of the saints, and the exaltation of the Lord. The Song of the Lamb deals with these same three themes. And there is a perfection about this judgment. Notice what it says here. Great and marvelous are your works. Righteous and true are your ways. Great and marvelous. Righteous and true. So what you have here in Revelation 15 verses 1 to 8, you have martyred believers They've been slaughtered because they would not bow the knee to the Antichrist. They've been killed, yet they're filled with praise because God is bringing this judgment. It was a completely unfair that they should be killed by these evil people. And yet they say, now that you've judged them and you're giving them what they do, this is right, this is righteous, and it's true. When God judges evil, it's good. Same thing happens in chapter 16. Look with me at chapter 16, verses 4 to 7. This is what we call the third bowl judgment. Revelation 16, verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, here's an angel in heaven, and I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous art thou who art and who wast, O holy one, because you have judged these things for... They poured out the blood of your saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar of heaven saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So in heaven, you have the believers, the martyred saints, praising God for this wrath. And the holy angels, likewise, are praising God for this wrath. We see it again in chapter 19, when this all comes to a point of culmination. Chapter 19, in verse 1 and 2. After these things I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged Babylon, the great harlot, who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. All heaven is saying, yes, it's about time. Now, here's a big question, okay? 
If God must judge sin, and he must judge sin, how is it that, that worthless scoundrels like me and you can escape that? Because we are, and uh, you really want to boil it down, at a spiritual level, we're a bunch of worthless scoundrels. How is it that you and I could escape that? And the answer is this. It's called the cross. Eternal God purposed that he would one day come in flesh. Eternal God purposed that in the person of Christ, God the Son took on flesh, and on him, the Bible says, was laid the iniquity of us all. God caused all of our sin, the judgment for our sin, to fall upon Jesus Christ. And God says in the Bible, I've paid the price for your sin if you will trust in what I have done. I'll forgive you. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Amen? Here's another observation about this. These martyred saints filled with praise are recognizing that Christ is going to receive all the glory for this. So here it says, you deserve this praise, O Lord God, the Almighty, King of the nations. Notice the titles that uh, are being given to Jesus Christ the Lord. First of all, it calls him, O Lord God. In the Old Testament, we see that expression, Yahweh Elohim, Lord God. First time you see it is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, when the Lord God came in the garden. Adam, where are you? Uh, I'm hiding, I'm naked. How did you know you were naked, Adam? Did you eat from the tree? It was the woman that you gave me. But the Lord God was there. Do you know who that Yahweh Elohim is? That's Christ, the Son. That's eternal Christ. Jesus Christ became a human being 2,000 years ago. So his human existence had a point when it started in Mary's womb 2,000 years ago. But Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He's always been there. He's always been there. He's eternal. You know, when you look in Exodus chapter 3 and when God uh, appeared to Moses, right, at Mount Sinai, it tells us in Exodus chapter 3 <coughs> that the burning bush was there. In Exodus chapter 3 verse 4, it says, God called to Moses from the middle of the burning bush. Elohim, God. That's the Hebrew word. It means God. God called to Moses. Hey, Moses, come over here. But uh, Take your shoes off first. You're on holy ground. Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, God spoke, and he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, God spoke from the bush, but it says, then Yahweh spoke from the bush. So who was in the bush? Yahweh, the living God, the God of Israel. But in Exodus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, it says that he's God. Well, guess what? Yahweh is God. All right? And then what happens in Exodus 3, verse 7, Yahweh said, I've seen the affliction of my people, and I'm going to send you to deliver my people. But if you go back to Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, 
when we first read about the burning bush, it says that there in the middle of the burning bush, it was the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. Guess what? The messenger of the Lord is the Lord. The messenger of the Lord is God. The messenger of the Lord is the Lord God as Christ, the eternal son. He's always been there. So when you get the call to say, uh, well, you know, I don't believe in the deity of Jesus. They have absolutely no clue of what the Bible is saying because they're brainwashed by Satan and uh, the lies of their false religion. This is true whether it's a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon or a Muslim that says, well, no, we don't believe that. We just think he's a prophet. No, Jesus is eternal God. 2,000 years ago, he became a man so that he could save you and me. Amen? Now, when we come here to Revelation, we see him all over the place. Right here in Revelation 15, he is called the Lord God, the Almighty Pantocrator means he has all power. The Lord God, the Almighty, the King of the nations. Go back with me to chapter 1. Notice how we see him all throughout the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, look at verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Who's that talking about? That's Christ. When he returns, behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Some people say, well, the second coming of Christ happened in the first century. Like it was invisible, but it was God judging the nation of Israel. No, that's false teaching. Christ is going to return in glory. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega. First and last letter of the Greek alphabet says the Lord God, the one who is and was and who is to come the Almighty. This is Christ the Son. Go back with me really quick to chapter 21. Look at chapter 21 and verse 6. Christ again. Revelation 21 verse 6. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water without cost. The spring of water of life without cost. Look at chapter 22 verse 13. Verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly. That's Jesus returning. I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is eternal God. Now go back with me one more time to chapter 1. Now I'm giving you some verses here that you want to mark down and memorize these verses and what's in them. Because what it does, it shows us repeatedly the deity of Christ the Son. Amen. Notice what happens in chapter 1 over here in verses 17 and 18. John sees a vision of the glorified Christ. And John says, When I saw him, 117, I fell at his feet as a dead man, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and I am the living one. And I died. But behold, I'm alive forevermore. Eternal God, the first and the last, the living one. He says, and I died. I became dead. But I'm alive forevermore. This is our Savior. Amen? This is Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, 
This is the one that we see here in Revelation 15. And what happens is here in Revelation 15, the saints are telling us that one day all of creation is going to acknowledge and say, he is the Lord. Great, verse 3, and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, you King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Lord, one day, and that day has arrived, they're all going to recognize that you are the King of kings. You are God. You are the creator. And they're going to come, and they're going to worship you. Now, John gives us three reasons why all of this is going to happen and the whole world is going to acknowledge him. First of all, notice what it says down here. For you alone are holy. The word holy here is not your usual word hagias, but it's the word hasias and it means pious. When you look at Jesus, you look at this man, he alone is God in flesh. You alone are pious. You alone are sacred. Secondly, he says... (coughs) For all the nations will come and worship before you. Here's what the Bible says. When Jesus brings his kingdom to this world and cleans house, the whole world is going to come and bow before him and worship. It says this over and over again. Look with me at Isaiah for just a minute. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 2. Keep your place in Revelation. We're coming back here very quickly. Look at Isaiah chapter 2, what Isaiah says is going to happen when Christ brings the kingdom of God to this world. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. It'll come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, that's the kingdom of the Lord, will be established as chief of the kingdoms, chief of the mountains. It'll be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Christ is going to rule the world from his capital, which is Jerusalem. And verse four, he will judge between the nations and he will render decisions for all the world. For many peoples, they will hammer their swords into plows, their spears into pruning hooks, Nation will never lift up sword against nation. Never again will they learn more. Is that happening right now? No, because we're not in the kingdom. When Christ returns and brings his kingdom to this world, this is what the word of God says. The word of God says, this is what he's going to do. He's going to purge the world of war. We're not in that kingdom. And the whole world will come, as it says here in Isaiah, and they will worship Christ. Look at Isaiah 45. Go back to Revelation after that. But look at Isaiah 45, verses 21 to 23. Isaiah 45. Declare your case, God says. Let them come come and consult. Uh, Indeed. Who has announced this from long of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, Yahweh? There's no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There's none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there's no other. I've sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness 
and will not turn back that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance, and they will say of me, only in Yahweh, only in the Lord, a righteousness and strength. And men will come to him. All those who had been angry at him will be put to shame. Unbelievers, judged. But in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. This is Christ it's talking about here. The whole world is going to come and worship him. Here's a third reason for the fact that this is going to happen. Look what it says here in verse 4. It says, for your righteous acts have been revealed. In other words, they're going to come. They're going to worship you because you are going to judge the world. And when he brings this judgment, what's going to happen? Two things. The unsaved who were so hard-hearted and they said not going to believe well they're going to bow the knee as damned criminals but for those that have seen his glory and seen his grace and have responded in faith they're going to be there giving praise as his people in the kingdom and that's what Psalm Revelation 15 is saying your righteous acts have been revealed One writer says here, the song closes with joyful anticipation of the millennial reign of Christ when all the nations will come and worship. In the earthly millennial kingdom, it will come about that any of those who are left from all the nations of the world will go up yearly to worship Christ. This is what it says in in Zechariah chapter 14. The whole world, because the only ones that are going to be allowed entrance into his kingdom are those that have believed. No one saved are going to be entered into the kingdom. Now, verses 5 to 8, we close really quickly here with a third scene. (laughs) This one here reminds us of the intensity of that wrath that is going to come. Look at verse 5. John says, After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. So what you have here is a heavenly temple. Now, Israel had its earthly tabernacle, but that earthly tabernacle was a physical man-made creation that was an echo of what God showed Moses on Mount Sinai. So what Moses saw was a heavenly tabernacle, and then Israel had an earthly tabernacle that represented it on earth. Right here, John in vision is seeing this heavenly truth of a temple in heaven. And notice what it says here. John says, I saw the tabernacle, and he says, I also saw, verse 6, Those angels, the seven angels who had the seven plagues coming out of the temple, clothed in linen, bright and clean, girded around their chests with golden sashes. Then verse 7, one of the four living creatures, this is the cherubim that surround the throne of God that we saw back in Revelation chapter 4. These angelic beings, these four living creatures, give to the seven angels the seven golden bowls full of wrath of God who lives forever and ever. You know, those bowls, uh, as you look in Revelation earlier, like in chapter 5, verse 8, those bowls contained the prayers of the martyred saints. Now what's happening is that uh, they're being described as bowls that are containing that final outworking of wrath because the prayers of the saints are saying, Oh, God, when are you going to settle the score? And God says, Oh, yeah, time for that right now. And as soon as these angels come forth out of the heavenly tabernacle with the bowls of wrath, verse 8 says, the temple was filled with smoke 
from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until those seven plagues and the seven angels were finished. One writer describes it by saying this, all of this recalls to mind the unapproachableness of God at Mount Sinai. You know, back in Revelation 19, when God appeared to Moses, God told Moses, uh, don't let anybody come near the mountain, Mount Sinai. Don't even let them try to gaze a peak, because if they look at me, they're going to die. So as God begins to execute that final judgment in the bowl judgments, that's where the smoke is coming out of the temple. John Walvoord says, taken as a whole, Revelation 15, 5 to 8, presents a fearful picture of this impending divine judgment. So here's the message as we close. God is holy, and he must judge sin. You know, God wants you and me to grow in our understanding of who he is, because when we grow in our understanding of who he is, not only is he holy, but he's also merciful. That's, that's the message of grace. We understand how horrible our situation is, and then we see what he's done for us in the cross. God uses that message of grace to melt our hearts and to draw us to himself and to, to pull us away from the love of sin and the love of the world. It's God's grace that stirs us. Amen? And we can look at wrath and say, oh, man, I don't want to end up in hell. No, none of us do. But when you see that wrath that must come, you know, the amazing wrath, and then you say, ah, oh, but look at the amazing grace. What a good Savior I have. I need to let him be Lord of my heart every moment of the day. Amen? Let me give you two final points of application. We already talked about it. One of them is this. You better make sure you turn to him and believe. Amen? Don't hear this message and then just brush it off. Because here's the fact of the matter. God is true. Sin is true. Hell is true. Christ is true. The cross is true. The resurrection is true. God's coming wrath is true. But forgiveness is true as well. Acts 16, verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Got to be genuine. Got to mean business. You got to be sincere. But believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. Do that yourself. And then take that message into the world. The time is short. Jesus said so. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you. <laughs> for your amazing grace. Your wrath is amazing as well in a, uh, in a completely different sense. It's, it's, uh, it's horrific. But your grace is amazing. That the only son would come to lay down his life for rebels like us. We don't deserve it. We didn't do anything to accomplish it. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your forgiveness. And we pray that you would help us to live it out the way that we should. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.